I'm in big trouble, Renee. Oh, no. What happened? Well, it's what could happen. We're starting. Okay. Usually. I don't, I don't know if I've ever even said this. 316 episodes of the show. I'm not sure I've ever said exactly when we've recorded the show. But I'll, I'll give a day. We're recording on Wednesday, June 23rd at 5.54 p.m. Eastern Time. I got I to gotta record dithering after this. Oh, okay. <laughs> but the Milwaukee Bucks have a playoff game at 8.30. <laughs> so I got to get this in under two hours or dithering is going to suffer a divorce. <laughs> it's all over. <laughs> Does anybody care about Milwaukee? I mean, honestly? Uh, a guy named Ben Thompson? Ah, <laughs> oh, come on. I'm not even sure Milwaukee has a team. Maybe he made it up. He's smart uh, enough he could get away with it. I know. He should have done what I did and root for the Sixers who lost. Anyway. <laughs> And of course, the, uh, the 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 further complication is that this is my first post WWDC show, other than my actual yeah. WWDC show with uh, Federighi and Jaws. But it's the first one where you know it's a like first normal episode, so we've got a lot yeah. to cover. We can say things you can't say in front of them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, let's start though with today's uh, white paper from Apple which I'm calling their anti-sideloading white paper, and yeah. the the regulatory environment in which they've crafted it and dropped it. I just it published something. my piece, annotating it, I describe it. Curious what you think of it. Yeah, I'm I'm really conflicted about this whole issue because on on one and I feel like this is a big problem for our industry because the people commenting on this stuff are largely really traditional computer users who come from really traditional computer backgrounds and to them, you know, to us everything should just be a computer. That's the expected behavior. Apple makes a new device, of course it should work in every way like every other device Apple has, has ever made, not counting the iPod, but it should work like a Mac, should work like an Apple too. And We've talked about this before, but it was clear at the inception that Steve Jobs meant for it to be what would be called now a console. Like it was meant to be an app console. And for a lot of people in the world, that is way better than a computer. And I'm afraid I, like my inherent prejudice where I would say, just gatekeeper it and have it done with would be like going to some kid and saying, no, 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 you don't want an Xbox. You want a PC. You're going to have to deal with some malware. You're going to have to deal with some ransomware. It's fine, but you can game on a PC. What do you need this idiot Xbox thing for? Or you should sideload on your Xbox. I feel like like, there's a lot of lack of empathy for non-computer nerds in this whole discussion. I think so, too. I think it's been that case all along. But I think it's coming to a head. It's coming to fruition. And then I... it is. It's. It's so multifaceted because that's that's sort of the user perspective, right? On the one hand, there are the users who, like as I put it in my piece, basically just want to know. Well, you know, just allow side loading as an off by default. You know, pretty much like Android, and yeah. in a way, sort of. I guess that's sort of like how the Mac defaults now too. I actually forget exactly yeah. what a factory fresh Mac defaults to, but I think it defaults to App Store only. Um. The Mac makes it really easy, well, as easy as I think it should be, to go in to security settings and say only allow, you know, un- uncheck the checkbox for only allow apps from the App Store and whether or not you allow unsigned apps, etc. Android hides it a bit, and it seems to move around between versions of Android. Yeah. Uh, Android settings, I find, not not impenetrable, but uh, like shifting sand. 
They're, they're moving, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> why, why, why not just do that, ship it by default, and then all of the iOS users, you know, most of them will never change their defaults. And so they'll be just as protected and limited by every, you know, everything coming through the App Store as they are today. And those of us who would like to install apps from other sources, for whatever reason, can choose to do so at our own risk. You know, give me a checkbox, give me a warning after the checkbox, I'll okay it, and then I'm on my own. It's my device, right? You put in your Konami code and you do your business. Right. I, I should probably add that to my, I forgot that, it's my device. Yeah. But that it's true, right? And I wrote that in my article. Like that's a good argument. It there, there's nothing or there's nothing wrong with that argument except that it's incomplete and it ignores to me the downsides. There there would be trade-offs. You know. Yes. The Mac is an expert first computer that it tries to be as safe and friendly and approachable as possible to non-expert users. And there are tens of millions of totally non-experts who use a Mac. My dad, yep. 83-year-old, he much prefers his their him and his, my mom's iMac to using an iPad or something like that. He, he just likes it. He likes having a keyboard. He likes the bigger screen. You know, and you know he's got it set up, and it works. It works for that. And but he, you know, he also knows. You know, there were always times in just over the last ten years, there were a lot of times where I'd get like a phone call, and they'd be like, "Ah, something's popped up. Says I need an Adobe Flash Player update." Right? It was often, yes. and it's like, "No, just say no. Yeah. I don't know where you got that. Say no, no, nope. You don't. You don't need that." There's all sorts of things you can do on a Mac, and that typical users get into trouble with. Non savvy, non technically savvy users get in trouble with. And the iPhone is, and iOS writ large and its family of, of uh, uh, OSs that are really just derivatives of iOS, like iPadOS and watchOS and tvOS, um, are non-savvy user first. You know, let's, let's, even though this is a full Unix computer with, again, even like on the watch, a pretty powerful chip. Yeah. But let's design it as though these are consumer electronics like the iPod was, where you cannot mess it up by doing anything. And it, in 14 years of experience now, this isn't like a hypothetical anymore. You know, the, the hypothetical as presented when Steve Jobs unveiled the iPhone SDK in 2007 and, and said it would have these limits – have been proven to be right. Users have thrived. The devices are the the most free of malware by any definition, right? Like not just viruses or or apps that try to ransomware you or something like that, but just something you just don't want. Period. Right? Like yeah. like that whole thing from a few months ago about uh, from Lauren Brichter about Chrome is bad. That was yes. that there's some kind of mysterious Their keystone right. uh, updater. Right, it's it's not malware in the sense that the, the Google Chrome engineers, who most or at least many of whom surely are Mac users themselves, right? Like Chrome is probably in large part developed on Macs by Mac users oh. at Google. They've got the best intentions, but they have made a decision that. Because they they think they know better than the user. Chrome updates by itself, invisibly in the background, and you don't really have an option to turn that off. 
at least not one that I know of. And if there is, it is, you know, like a secret setting or something like that. And it installs some kind of background agent in, you know, your home folder, library, something, something folder. And it runs every once in a while and checks if there's a new version of Chrome, even if Chrome isn't running. And it doesn't pop up a dialogue that says, do you want to upload the new version of Chrome? It just uploads it. And their argument, which is not unreasonable, is... uh this way, users are always up to date with the latest Chrome, yep. which could have security and performance improvements, and they don't have to do anything. Okay. But then the downside is that effectively, when you install Chrome on your Mac, you're no longer really running Mac OS. You're running Mac OS with this little tiny thing that's now part of the system <laughs> from Google. Yeah. And apparently, it could cause problems. That's not possible. And again, that's a well-intentioned developer making an extraordinarily popular Mac app. It's just not possible on iOS. And you can't overstate how, how, how important that is to users. And again, in 14 years of experience, we've seen users who, who were truly, I, I know this firsthand from my friends talking about their parents and relatives. And I say this because my friends are actually all nerds and know, but, you know, know how to do stuff. <laughs> uh, extended family members with Windows who had Windows computers in the past. They all, typical Windows users, eventually became afraid to install anything because installing yeah, yeah. stuff under Windows machine eventually, you know, caused problems and you'd have to wipe it or really that's why most people regular consumers i know why they chose to buy a new computer is that their old one just was like broke from from even like just adware like not even malware they get like 19 different bars on their browsers and cookie redirected to whatever affiliate links and browser hijacked and there's just so many things that i would classify as annoyances but when you have 18 flies buzzing around your head it's as bad as having you know like one one piece of malware it just becomes so unpleasant. You don't want to do things. And that's been the repeated experience with me and non-tech savvy people. And I don't mean dumb. I think a lot of people say like when we talk about non-tech savvy people, we're talking down to them or thinking that they're stupid. And they're not. They can be geniuses who just don't happen to give a crap about all the technical things that we do. They just use it as a tool. Like they're doing science or medicine or law and they need a tool that works and they don't have the time, the inclination or the patience to deal with all the stuff that we do on, on a regular daily basis. And it, it feels like in our desire to, like we have Unix, we have Windows, we have Android, we have Mac OS. They really only have iOS and Chrome OS. And it feels like just because we think it's sexy hardware, we want to take it away from them and say, no, this is going to be our nerd box too. And that just feels so inconsiderate sometimes. Right. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the Mac... And other, you know, PC type platforms like Windows, this Mac and Windows and stuff like that are expert first, typical user second. And iOS is typical user first, expert second. Yeah. And Apple is, and we'll get to this, they are expanding the power user type features on iOS in, in truly uh, wonderfully encouraging ways and at a pace that now seems like this is great. Like shortcuts are a lot better in the new iOS 15 that's coming out than they were last year. And last year's was a big improvement over the year before. They got so much faster and they can do so much more. And, you know, hobbyist level users can build really interesting things with shortcuts and and they can do things like uh, starting last year, that whole trend where 
non-technical users on their iPhones and iPads, but especially iPhones, let's face it, were replacing their putting all their apps in the app library and then setting up shortcuts yep. for each of the apps. And then you can assign a custom icon to the shortcut and all it does is open the app. And then all of a sudden you could, you could give whatever app you want. You could have like a custom suite of black and white icons for all of the apps that you use on your first screen and a cut, you know, you've always been able to customize. Well, not always, I guess <laughs> starting like yes. iOS four, you could customize your wallpaper. I love that because it's exactly what got me into Mac enthusiasm when I first got a Mac back way back in, you know, like 1947 or <laughs> whenever it was when I was a young, young man in college. But like dicking around in ResEdit with tweaking the icons or pasting new icons on apps or folder icons. Remember that? That was, I love that. Yes. Yeah, like, same. Like my BB Edit folder, where the BB Edit app was and all of its support f- files, was a folder icon with a little BB Edit badge in the corner, not a regular folder icon. I loved doing stuff like yeah, that. Same. I, it's in it, you know, it's a great way to get into it. But still, it's typical user first, safety first, expert second. It's a flip flop of the priorities of which users are the most catered to and which one comes second. And some people just don't see that as a reasonable choice. And uh, even that is like far more than Steve Jobs or Scott Forstall ever intended. Like, I, I think there's a mentality for some people at Apple that iOS 6 was the pinnacle of anything that any normal user would ever need. And there was a lot of pressure not to do AirDrop right. and not to do any of the things that we take for granted as basic utility features now. And it's only because Craig is nerdier and, you know, Apple has gotten more expansive with the iPhone and the iPad that we're getting these features. But I agree with you. Something like... Um, you know, some some sort of uh, theme kit to me is like a much higher priority in terms of what an average, and I don't use average disparagingly at all, but what a, what the vast majority of right. users would want than a lot of the things that we're arguing about is as minority opinions that we just consider to be minor, majority because we have them. Right. Then beyond the power user who wants it to be like the Mac and a typical user who feels so much safer and more um, uh willing to install whatever they want. Um, there, there's the regulators and legislators. And like reading these bills, the five or six bills from the U.S. House of Representatives that are getting marked up, I think, starting today and were announced last week, uh, It's there's fundamentally at the highest level, I disagree with most, almost all of the the things that they're trying to do. Even more importantly, it's clear in the ones that I disagree with the most that that the legislators don't understand this at all. Or they don't have the same, their priorities are not aligned with those of us who want to see some recognizable form of these systems remain intact. Yeah, and and like uh, uh, Representative Jayapal, who's from Washington State, uh, who I really liked last year. It, one of the curious things about this uh, is that her her questioning in last summer's uh, hearing with Tim Cook, Jeff Bezos, uh, Zuckerberg, and I think Jack was the fourth. Yeah, I think Jack. Uh, he's just Jack from Twitter. <laughs> they they offered very little, very few questions to. 
to Tim Cook. And Tim Cook had a sort of why am I here uh, demeanor in some way, not disrespectful, but there was also in the, in the run up to the conference, there was, you know, reports that, that Tim Cook and Apple sort of responded to the, we'd like, you know, before we force you to, we'd like you to come a sort of, why, why are you bothering with us? We're not doing anything that's a, a violation of antitrust laws. Yeah. And the hearing came and went, and it was after it was over. And that was one that I watched the whole thing. There was sort of yeah, a why, why, why did they make Tim Cook do this? They hardly asked him anything. And Jayapal's questions uh, to Amazon in particular were, I, I thought, really, really good. And the bill that she's sponsoring is very much just going after Apple. And kind of curiously, I think the company, the second most, because it, it, her bill is, is, pretty much trying to say that the first party platform maker shouldn't be allowed should be it should be legally prevented from advantaging itself in any way over third party developers and that's just not how platforms work i mean there, is it possible that a first party platform maker can do something illegal goes too far and should be regulated by the government compared to you know yes i it, it's undeniable there's got to be limits but the idea that it should be uh, on equal footing is un- a complete lack of understanding of what it means to be the first party, right? That's why we call them the first party. They come first. Nintendo can't make Mario. It's the world we want to live in. <laughs> can't have Halo on an Xbox. I, I don't want to live in this world. Well, you and you get to, you know, here's like a little example, a little example, but it, it's just one. And just to call out a new feature announced at WWDC, but the iPad iPad OS now has a feature called Quick Note, where you can use your pencil or or your finger to slide out from the lower right corner and instantly make a new Quick Note. We are calling it in Apple Notes, and it integrates with Safari and uh, I think a few other apps. But like Safari in particular, if you're on a web page, you start a new Quick Note. It'll draw the URL from the current Safari page, pre-fill it in the note. And if you annotate or quote like a certain section of the web page, when you go back to that quick note, it'll know when it goes to the web page to go to that part of the page that that you made a note about. Cool feature. That would be illegal under Jayapal's bill because it's not offered to third-party note apps. I, I, that to me is ridiculous. I mean, that's what it means to be the the first party. You get that. You get the advantage. It's it, that whole thing was so interesting to me, and I watched I watched it as well because it started off. And I'm blanking. You just said his name, but I'm blanking on the chairman's uh, of that committee's name. Uh, Cicilloni. Um, yes, yeah, Cicilloni. He started off by saying, "Like, do these big companies need to be broken apart? We're going to take evidence." And then nobody's mentioned that at all for the entire length of the conference. The Republicans mostly focused on conservative voices being suppressed as sort of theater. And you knew that because whenever they broke character, they became these really efficient litigators who really asked good questions and then went right back to their theater about conservative voices. And Democrats who largely talked about uh, the behavior of the companies towards their competitors and their partners. And again, you could see that was a lot of theater because like you mentioned, when they got serious about it, they became like the real lawyers that they are. When they, everyone just seemed to break character and occasionally be competent, but then go right back to their set theatrical patterns, which I found astounding. And then at the end, he just said, okay, thank you for everything. It is clear to me now these companies need to be broken up. 
bang, gavel, we're done. And it just, it, it, it made such, it was such a cognitive dissonance about the entire proceeding. And it seems to manifest itself now in these bills. I do think, though, that, and this is, I hopefully, that comes across in my, my article is that in some ways, I feel like the bills are very misguided, but I also feel that a lot of this is Apple's own fault. And it is, is it arrogance? Is it, uh, I don't know, but there was a sense back with the ebook case, which I think was like around 2013, that Apple had the attitude that I still agree with that how is this happening that we're the ones facing antitrust uh, uh, lawsuit over our ebooks when Amazon owns over eighty percent, maybe ninety percent of the ebook market? Like, not you know, you can get into questions over what constitutes a monopoly. You know, when you're talking yeah. like fifty percent, is it forty five percent? Is it fifty five percent? But like Kindle is clearly an ebook monopoly. They have a, a not just a majority share, but an overwhelming majority share. So how in the yes. world was Given Apple facing through this lawsuit? And I think Apple headed into that case thinking, well, we we're not this. I don't know why we're even going to court, but we've you know we've we pay all these lawyers, <laughs> and that's why we have them. Yeah. We'll be okay. And son of a bitch, they lost, and they got stuck with uh, like a government regulator uh, uh, sniffing up, you know, sniffing up their butts yes, for a year. Ludicrously, um, and you know, here we are, twenty years later or ten years later, and yeah, Kindle's share of the market is probably larger than it was then. Um, and it was a weird, like in broad strokes, uh, one of the things that the U.S. tends to look at differently than the EU, like the EU seems to be all about competition and the U.S. seems to be mostly about, you know, lowest price for consumers. And Amazon was providing lower prices by dumping, like by using it as a loss leader, by dumping it, which is not healthy and not good for competition. But Apple working with others, I guess, was seen as a form of collusion. But they didn't look at the results that they wanted. And I find like both the DOJ and the EU make this mistake. And the EU famously with browser ballots, their goal was to stop Internet Explorer from taking over and to preserve these small market browsers like Fenris and I forget, Sleipnir, things like that. But what they ended up doing was destroying IE and allowing essentially Chrome to become the dominant browser. But worse than that, they destroyed like every other rendering engine we had. Opera went to Chromium, IE went to Chromium. They handed Google an effective, much larger monopoly over web browsing or much larger power over web browsing than IE ever had because their their focus was was on what they thought was a problem and not the solution that actually needed to be handled or the, or what consumers needed as a as a solution i would argue that that their the eu decision where you, you know on first boot you, you windows machines in in the eu had to maybe still have to offer you a choice of default browser a browser ballot yeah uh, i i would argue that it was a that bad law and it's a bad experience for the user, and it's a pain in the ass that Microsoft didn't deserve. But I, I would argue that that's not the reason IE dropped from relevance. I think IE eventually got beaten fair and square by Firefox as as a superior. Firefox built a browser for Windows, or, or Mozilla built Firefox for Windows, and it was so much better that users switched on their own and and companies had their their employees switch on their own because it was they they deemed it technically superior and chrome eventually beat firefox and now dominates certainly dominates windows uh and is the most single most popular 
browser and browser engine in the world yeah. on merit. Uh, I, I, that's the thing that I think the legislatures don't get is that how fast tech works and how, you know, Windows still has probably about the same market share. I mean, I know Macs are selling better than ever, but the overall market share of PCs, if you define PCs as things running Windows, Mac, and Linux, is as strong as it ever was. But is nobody talks of Microsoft in the terms that they did circa 1996, yeah, 97, because the, the, the world shifted, right? Yeah. Competition really works. I'm not trying to be a capitalism fundamentalist here, but it really does work. And tech moves so fast, technology moves so fast that it's the one industry, I think the first industry ever, where you see it happen not just once in your lifetime, but several times in your lifetime, right? I'm I'm only 48 years old and it's happened several times that the the general gist of who is on top i mean most of yes, the companies absolutely. who are now on top the ones who are in the new york times is big tech cabal uh facebook didn't exist google didn't exist it, when i was in college and i'm only 48 years old they didn't even exist i don't, mark zuckerberg yeah. was probably like three years old uh, <laughs> it changes fast and yes, absolutely. You know, IBM is IBM a terror of of the industry, a menace that everybody has to deal with? No. When's the last time it, any you you really even thought about IBM? You know, it it yeah. can it can happen fast. I mean, there it, in 1995, I think Sun Microsystems was on the cusp of just purchasing Apple. And oh, it was a, as a Mac user at the time. It was like, oh, I hope that right. doesn't happen because that's going to be bad. Yeah, dark days. Sun Microsystems doesn't exist, right? Yeah. They, they, they Yahoo got... was going to try to buy Google, right? When's the last time you heard of Yahoo? Right. This stuff moves fast. Does that mean that all regul no regulation ever should happen? Of course not. But I think it sh it needs to be surgical, and I just can't believe that after the Microsoft thing 20 or 25 years ago um that they haven't learned that lesson but the, the yeah, other point i want to make seems like well go ahead no i was also saying like it also seems like these days they choose a company as a target and then want to specifically try to like whether it's bans on tiktok or so, bans on app bundling with apple they choose a company as a target and try to write legislation to the solution that they that they believe is necessary instead of just making laws that you can't violate. And if any of these companies violate them, then action is taken. And that always seems problematic because you're making large assumptions about a single entity that probably doesn't represent the way the consumers interact with them at all. Yeah, and I think that I think that they misunderstand consumers, period. Right? It, it's so sure, Spotify and Tile and you know Facebook has issues with with Apple's app tracking transparency. So there are smaller companies like Spotify and Tile who are complaining uh, about having to go against Apple Music and AirTags and the whole Find My Network uh, being. You know to, what Tile wants is to be able to integrate the OS like Find My does, and so that Tile users can have their iPhones be beacons that listen for tiles and stuff like that, which would be possible on the Mac. Right? Yep. They could install some sort of system extension uh, that keeps it running in the background and listens as a background agent and and does stuff like that. It, 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 
Could there be a phone? You know, and, and I guess one of the frustrations the power user type users have is that there is no phone that really gives them. It, it, there's no certainly no Apple phone that gives them that level of yes, I trust myself to only install stuff, but I want to install stuff that runs in the background all the time, right? So, like, I know the iPad is not a. a direct competitor to the Mac. But it sort of is, you know, if you consider that most Macs are MacBooks, the iPad is sort of an alternative to a MacBook. And Apple offers both. If you want only the iPad safety rails, you could just use iPad. Or if you want a Mac, you can have a Mac. It does kind of suck. And that's intentional. That's very deliberate on their side. Like that Steve wanted to make, he was relentless about wanting to make computers that were more and more mainstream. Right. It sucks that there's no Mac phone in addition to the iPhone. I understand why there's not. I mean, I don't think it would make uh, be a good business decision. But in theory, in a hypothetical world where Apple made both iPhones and Mac phones, and the Mac phones had all the capabilities, uh, like sort of you, the user, can just install whatever you want. And it can be installed not just as an app in a sandbox. You can install non-sandboxed apps that you know, have crazy wild permissions because you could do cool things, right? That's what, there, no doubt about it. There are totally cool ideas that you cannot develop. No developer can offer for I, iOS because they're not at Apple. Only Apple can can do system level yeah. stuff. Um, that sucks. And but, just to your point earlier about Tile, like Tile, one of the things that's interesting to me is that we know a bunch of developers who don't put up with Apple. You know, Sherlocking them. They they go right out in Moriarty Apple. Like they make. Fantastical and PCalc and uh, Halide and all these apps that are just way better than Apple's apps. And I'm not saying that to be condescending or to dismiss, you know, the platform advantage Apple has, but you can see a world where Tile says, okay, we're using the Find My API that Apple provides on iPhone and we're doing something Apple can't. We're using our own network on Android or Google's network on Android so that if you have a cross-device family, you can buy a Tile and use it with everything. You don't have to worry about being stuck in Apple's ecosystem. And you could look at like... um Clubhouse saying, you know, we made this wonderful app and now Spotify has green room and they have this huge platform advantage and they're using it to suppress us. So I honestly don't see a difference between Spotify and Apple. One's just a billion dollar tyrant, the other is a trillion dollar tyrant. And it makes all of these debates seem much more self-serving to me than I think the companies actually realize. I, I And I the other thing, I, I just think that the legislation totally gets the consumer perspective wrong. And I know yeah. I forget his name, the the Apple guy who they sent instead of Tim Cook in the run up to the lawsuit. Um, but remember, uh, there was, remember this, but he was a guy. I'm like, I'm a sorry. I hope he doesn't listen to the show. <laughs> but they they sent him, and it, I don't think he did very well in front of the Senate committee. He was testifying, and I think that's partly where some of this is coming from now. But. One of the things that he'd said repeated that I do think was true was that what what the the implication of the questions of why are you doing this, this is bad, is that you're describing features that our customers love. This is what they love about the iPhone. They love yeah. that they cannot mess it up. They love that they can't install anything that runs the battery down in the background without their knowledge. They love that the private they love the new privacy controls that are in their hands and not developer hands. Um, and I think that they misunderstand that. I really do. It's it, the, I, the, I really think it's true that the iPhone has succeeded not despite its restrictions on software distri- distribution, but largely because of them. And, you know, this, was it 
Kyle Andier? Was that the one we're yes. looking for? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, good. Now, now you can listen to the show again. <laughs> uh, I, I, it's it, and I feel like that argument fell on deaf ears, even though it, the Occam's Razor argument is that yes, it it had it it has made it wildly popular, and yeah. it, it, the iPhone didn't drop into the world and. A uh, hundred million people bought it. It was like what? Was, it was like we'd like to sell ten million in the first by the end of the next year or something like yeah, that. If total. we get one percent, we'll be right. happy. Right? We'll get in a world where it was unlike all other phones, and uh, it looked different. And even for users who really wanted to use their phone for email and messaging, it was the whole thing about the keyboard. Like this is ridiculous. Nobody, you know, Steve Ballmer laughing that doesn't even have a keyboard and yeah. it costs six hundred bucks. And anybody who's serious about doing messaging on their phone wants a keyboard because, of course, you know, yeah. it, it, that's what succeeded in the past, the BlackBerry. And, and again, look at it. Where's BlackBerry now, right? It, tech yeah, changes. Absolutely. Um, yeah. All right. Let me and take For a lot of people, like, I think that's the problem is that we look at it, like, traditional computer people look at that, look at those things as bugs, where millions of mainstream users see those as features. Absolutely. They really do. I, I and I know I, I know anic data is not data, but I, <laughs> I have so much anic data from people. Like I remember, I, I have a friend who I, I worked with at uh, Barebone Software twenty years ago, and I ran into him at WWDC. It was probably around twenty twelve, twenty thirteen or so. Uh and he was talk, telling me about his father-in-law. And he said his father-in-law, I forget what he did. Maybe he was an accountant or something like that. But he said he's crackerjack smart. He's super smart. Always a Windows user and always had a, uh, just one of those Windows users who had a bad, you know, bad perception of Apple. Just thought Apple wasn't for him. It was for other type of people. But never really was a Windows user you know he used windows computers but you know never installed additional software he thought you know the only way this is how i keep my my computer going is i just you know use the software that comes on it install the least possible software like here's the accounting package i use you know to run my accounting business and that's it yeah retired got an ipad and he said you cannot believe what he's doing on it he's making movies editing this large digital photo library he's he's become like a, a a computing enthusiast and installs all sorts of third party apps loves the app store uh, uh because he he realizes and can feel yeah you have like it's not like oh apple says it's safe it's like you have this perception in the ipad iphone experience yeah. you can feel it's safe yeah, you know it's, safe. it's you experience it, that it's safe. It it's like that you can be a nerd and roll your eyes at that and say nope, they're just suckers for the marketing or whatever. But it's true. There's something ineffable about the design that lets you feel that this is safe and that there's nothing going on mysterious in the background and that when you delete an app in jiggle mode, the app and all of its traces are gone. That's it. You don't like you didn't like this game? You delete it, it's gone. And there's nothing in the background that's going to pop up in a month and say, hey, do you want to play, you know, do you want to re-download me? Uh, you know, I'm still available in the App Store. It's, it won't happen. It's, it's so true. Like, I have several 
like direct and extended family members who are doctor, like doctorate level, you know, education. And they just always felt stupid using a computer. It didn't make sense to them. It was too finicky and they were always nervous. They always felt intimidated, made them feel stupid. And they just, the iPad is the first computer that didn't do that. And they love it. My mom has an iMac, you know, other people in my family have MacBooks. They don't use them. They use iPads now because that to them is the first computer that makes sense. Right. It's, and it's just, uh, and I, th- I thought Apple's white paper raised a very key point about that argument to go back a few minutes about, um, well, look, if you don't want to sideload, just never turn it on. But if that's there, it, it's probably true that most users wouldn't, but some users would. And, and they might, uh, some users who don't really know what they're getting into or don't want to get into it might have to. Like if you're using your own iPad at school and the school says you, we want you to install this proctoring software, but the proctoring software is not in the app store because it's doing stuff that the app store doesn't allow surveillance wise. Um, what do you do if you're a student? What do you do if you're taking the, the SAT or the LSAT or something like that on your iPad and they, you, you either, you can either do it and install it and turn on side loading or you don't get to take the test. What do you, who's, who's going to say no to that? What if you're, you're well, in Tim a, Epic says you need to get Fortnite by right. side loading and then you're trying to find out which version of Fortnite is safe because a bunch of malware people right. have, that, which is exactly what happened on Android when they did that. Right. A bunch of malware versions have also been put out there. Yeah, Apple cited a bunch of cases in the footnotes. I didn't get into that in my article, but their footnotes are actually pretty fascinating. There's a lot of cases that would have been good daring fireball fodder, <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> that I had not heard of, of like fake games and stuff like that, uh, or pirated yeah. versions of games. Uh, I guess the more common scam, though, is just the fake version of the game. You tell somebody that it's Candy Crush and you can install it for free yep. over here and you get it and it's not Candy Crush, it's something else. Or if you install these five apps, we'll give you money towards this. They do that now, you know, yeah. even with non-fake apps, they try to use Like yeah. The whole thing is just... Yeah, the other one that was eye-opening to me was the ransomware angle, which again is not just presented by Apple as a hypothetical, but is footnoted with actual examples where there are Android apps that, you know, you could install by a side loading and would offer things like uh, photo filters or something like that. Something that the purpose of the app, because, you know, Android has the similar things as iOS where you have to give the app permission to access your photos. And you say, well, yeah, that's why I got the app so it can access my photos. And as soon as it has access to your photos, the app says, uh, you need to pay $10 through a credit card right now, or I'm going to delete all the photos from your phone. And it are, you've already given it the permission to have access to your photos. Um, people can say, like, that's your fault or your choice or you're dumbing it down. But right now, people have this choice to get a platform that makes it really, really difficult to do all those things, where their level of fear, of stress, of anxiety is very low because the platform itself protects them against that but you can also choose a different platform. Like right now you have the choice between iOS and Android. And on some level, this is taking away that choice. It's whether you believe the choice should be on the platform level, like every you should have a choice on every platform to do it, or whether it's okay to have one platform that allows it and one that doesn't. And you get to choose between those things the way you get to choose between an Xbox and a gaming PC, for example. They don't have to be the same. Very true. Let me t- uh, Before I take a sponsor break, let me just take this break to do a total footnote. And I, 
bringing up my friend Steve, who told me that story about his father-in-law at like WWDC 2012 or 13. I remember that while we were talking, we were, I was like, where are you going? And he told me that he was going to a security session. And I was like, I'll go. That sounds interesting. And I went and it was a session on security. And, uh, Back then, I think Apple's largely gotten away with the Q&As, but they were still doing post-session Q&As. And it was a session about security. And in the Q&A, we're like, I was like, you know, like it's at that point where it's like once a Q&A starts, you start putting your stuff back in your backpack and you're like, I think I'm done. You know, I don't, the Q&As are never that good. But this one was, it stuck with me ever since. The question was somebody who asked, um, passwords are, terrible for most users. They use the same ones over and over. They forget the ones they have if they are secure. Uh, and they're they're open to scamming in a bunch of ways where you can prompt for a password and the user can put their password in, but it's not, you're, you're giving it to an adversary and now they've got the password to your account. Are you, is Apple looking at anything that would replace passwords? And... <laughs> The guy at the microphone paused and like stared down for a, a a very long beat, and then he looked up and he said, "Yes," <laughs> and that was it. That was the whole answer. <laughs> and I, it was so. And Steve and I looked at it. We're like, "Oh, that's interesting," because he was even wondering if he should say yes. <laughs> <laughs> he was definitely not thinking, should I say more? He was thinking, should I even say yes? Or should I just give the, uh, we don't really, you know, we, we don't talk about future product plans. Yeah. Uh, and look at where we are now, you know, with so many features. Because uh, that's the other thing he might have been thinking about. He's, he might have been thinking about how many let's move beyond entering a password manually features Apple had how many of those coals were in the fire already at the time that we've now seen? It's, yeah, it's one of my whole team working on it now. It's amazing. <laughs> All right, let me take a break here and thank our first sponsor. It's our good friends at LinkedIn. Today, many small business owners are busier than ever because they're focused on managing and growing their business. They can't always spend the time they wish they could on recruiting. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to find and hire the best candidates for free. Get started by posting your job for free to reach LinkedIn's network of 740 million professionals. Let me say that again. 740 million professionals are on LinkedIn. Pretty big market. Fill out targeted screening questions to get your role in front of the most qualified candidates with the experience, skills, and motivation you need. Then use simple tools to filter and prioritize the top candidates you would like to interview. LinkedIn Jobs will help you hire the right person for the role you have open. And your first job post is free. Just visit linkedin.com slash talk. Again, that's linkedin.com slash talk to post your first job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Um, all right, the flip side of this, before we move on to WWDC stuff, is to me – the conflict of interest and that that has gotten Apple into this whole f f truly it, it's a serious fiasco. I don't think that Jaya Powell's bill is going to pass. I really don't. I, I honestly wonder she's so she's clearly so smart. I honestly wonder if she's not playing the heel in some way. 
by yeah. putting this bill out there as a stake in the ground. That's Ben Thompson's argument that it's sort of an anchoring strategy. And then it makes the lesser, less drastic bills seem uh, like a compromise. Whereas if the less drastic bills were the only bills, they would seem drastic. But yeah. uh, Apple it, it has, it has gotten into this situation. They, I think almost entirely by pursuing a maximal maximization strategy on app store revenue from third party developers. Um, and maybe maximal maximizing is a bit of an overstatement because it's not like they've rate. I mean, they emphasize this too. They emphasize that the, the rates for developers have only ever come down from 30% in terms of offering the 15% for the second year, second and subsequent years of a subscription and the new small business program for uh, developers with under a million dollars in revenue who can get 15% across the board. They've only ever come down. But there's also a counter argument that raising the rates to 40, 40% or 50 50 might blow up in their face. You know, that there's, you know, it's the, the, total calculus, you know, that uh, of tax tax rates, right? Like you can't just tax everybody 99% and have your government sit on all the money because if you tax people at 99%, they're not going to work. You know, there's a sweet spot in there. But it's true though that I think it's undeniably true. And to me, best exemplified by these rules against allowing apps to send users to the web to sign up. So, okay, Netflix... Uh, though long in the app store and you know forever will have tens of probably tens of millions of users who are paying for Netflix through their app, you know the app store because it used to be available but they've pulled it several years ago because they got sick of the 15 85 15 yeah. split they had with Apple so now if if you're somebody who never signed up for Netflix or you had it and you canceled and you get the app from uh, iOS or tvOS or iPadOS, there's no way to sign up in the app. It doesn't tell you what to do because they're not allowed to. They're not allowed to say, go to Netflix.com to sign up to create your Netflix account. They, they're not allowed to even say that. And, you know, Apple going after companies like this story last week or two with a comp- uh, uh, small company called... Uh, Fan House, which is actually a really cool name for for what they're doing. It's sort of basically only fans, but PG rated. Yeah, maybe R rated. I don't know, but definitely not X X rated. Uh, but they were doing a thing where, so it, it, you know, I presume people have heard of OnlyFans, but basically it's it's a thing where you you could pay to subscribe to a, a creator or whatever. What would you call it? Uh, some of these yeah, like, I think creators fair. I mean, originally it was for sex workers to try to make you know some form of online income, but now it's you, you've got all sorts of you know what I would call social personalities yeah. on there. Well, as well. Actually, actually, OnlyFans didn't start with that. OnlyFans didn't start that way either. It, it started with no, it, that's true. Yeah, it, it was a bunch of like the big stars on OnlyFans were like soccer players, you know, like in 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 Europe. Um, but like you know, let's say you're a famous soccer star. And you could set up a page and people could pay. It, you know, it's sort of along the lines of Cameo, too, where you can just pay and you could get, like, DMs with, like, your favorite uh, uh, soccer player or basketball player yeah. or something like that. Or whatever kind of micro-celebrity you might be. Um, and they were 
sending, they did have a subscribe button in their iOS app. And then you'd hit the button and it would, I, I believe, jump you over to Safari. Or maybe it was presenting a web view in the app. And then they would take your credit card information in the app or maybe over in Safari. But either way, there was a button. And Apple said to them, you know, you, got, you have three months to, to implement true in-app purchases for this. But the, the, the numbers don't work out for their market. They, oh, yeah. they only take 10%. So let's say it costs 10 bucks to get a selfie or a, a, a FaceTime chat with somebody. Um, well, they only charge 10%. Nine, nine, $9 goes to the user, the creator. $10 went to uh, FanHouse. So where's the 30% come from? So they, their only option to comply would be to give Apple the 30% off the top and, and you run into the situation where where the numbers like that Apple would be getting compared to the creator leaving Fanhouse or Cameo or whoever else you know is doing similar things with these creator apps, which is a huge thing. It's like the the category of twenty twenty one. It it just seems disproportionate. Yeah, same uh, thing with the Twitter's new service that they they put out the numbers that Apple is getting compared to them, and it's ridiculous. And all they want to do. You know, and and the Hay app from last summer best exemplifies it because the Hay thing wasn't about them taking credit cards in their app the whole time. They didn't even have a button or a URL that said go to hay.com and sign up there. All they had was an app and they assumed that they would get enough users on their own to sign up on the web first and then get the app. They weren't even worried about the app being the source of discovery. The app would be something users would get because they're already fans of Basecamp or they heard of Hay and its features otherwise, uh, and they're confident in their own ability to get signups. Uh, they just wanted to have an app in the App Store that was based on the idea that it only worked if you already had an account from the web at Hay.com. And Apple's response was, you need to implement in-app purchasing so that users can sign up in the app. Yeah. That's exactly the mentality. That's that's what I'm calling maximization of of App Store revenue and revenue growth from third party developers. That if if they weren't doing that, I, I don't think they'd be in this this hot water. I, there'd still be there's always malcontents, and Tile would yes. still be upset about not being able to have system level software like Find My, and Spotify would still be upset about whatever they had to pay versus yeah. Apple and Music. Epic would want their own store. Right. <laughs> that would all continue. Right. But I don't think it would have the traction that it does. So what I don't understand is, I understand the, the historical context for a lot of this, because originally when they had in-app purchases, apps had to be, couldn't be free. You, you had to, if you were free, you had to stay free. You couldn't use in-app purchase. Only paid apps could. And then they changed that and they said that free apps could use in-app purchases, but you couldn't make external payments because their great fear back then when they when they flipped the switch was that every app was going to just move all payments outside the app store and Apple would be left holding the bag for all these free apps that then were all being monetized on the web, that all of the economy would move outside the app store. And the revenues were nowhere nearly as big back then, so that was a big concern for them. But over the years, everything grew. And then more recently, Apple made the statement that they were going to, I forget what it was, double their services revenue in the span of so many years. And the App Store has always been the biggest driver of services revenue. So it seems like they did everything they possibly could, could to juice App Store revenues so they could juice services revenues so they could make that number. But then they didn't 
they didn't say anything again. I thought that was a big sign. Like they didn't immediately say, and we're going to double it again in another few years. They just let it go at that point. And I thought, well, maybe they've learned something and they're going to go in and in the face of all of these potential obstacles and ill will, they'll say, okay, now, you know, the app store is, is performing way beyond our wildest dreams. Steve said he would have been super happy if it, op- if it operated just slightly above break even. And now it's this powerhouse and we're going to return some of that value to all of you that helped us build it would have been a perfect opportunity. But same thing when they saw that value wasn't leaving the app store, that some people would pay for convenience. Same thing when once they'd made those numbers for Wall Street with the services, they did nothing. They left the status quo. Even with that famous now Phil Schiller letter, yeah. they just left the status quo. And that I don't understand because that was just such an obvious missile <laughs> just rearing straight at them. Yeah, the Schiller, uh, I wrote about that just before WWDC. I think uh, literally the morning of WWDC. Um, and it's just striking. And I'm not surprised that it exists because I I know Phil Schiller well enough to know that he would think of things like this. And I know that he thinks, he, he sees the value in the brand as something that you can't put a dollar price on. Uh and, you know, again, it's like, look at the iPod, right? I do think some of the mistakes that Apple made in hindsight were coming from the iPod, where everything was either a a uh, song or a TV show or a movie that you pay, you know, a dollar or you pay $10 for the movie. And Apple keeps 30% and the producer of the song, the artist, you know, the, the publisher of the song or the studio behind the movie gets the 70%. And that's a much better cut than they got in the old days in retail yep. selling discs or tapes. And it works out for everybody. And you know the rules up front and it's purchased and there's no, there is no concept of subscriptions or in-app purchases or something like that. And, and there's I, only one middle person. There's no two middle people, which often exists in the app store now. Right. And I think, you know, they looked at the, the app store the same way that, you know, you'd buy these apps for a dollar or five dollars or ten dollars. I mean, it's kind of funny when you look at the first app store, uh, the, the announcement of the app store, how much, how, with the prices they were, they were put up in their hypothetical, you know, here's like yeah. an example of what it would look like. And, you know, it was, and it was based on their concept of the Mac market, right? Where that's how independent third party Mac apps were sold. You'd make an app and if you wanted it to be a, paid app, you'd sell it for 20 bucks or 30 bucks or yeah. 40 bucks or, you know, ridiculous prices like $50 for an application. That's what they cost before the iPhone. Like when I bought a stupid Sticky Notes app for the Palm OS, it was like 50 bucks. I know. I remember buying apps for the Palm OS. It was, it, they were definitely similarly priced to, to the Mac. It wasn't just yeah. like, oh, it's a tiny device in your pocket, so the price should be tiny too. Uh, it was, no, this is what third-party independent software costs, whatever the platform. Yeah. Um, and I think Apple based their uh, conception of how it would work on that. Um, but the Schiller idea of it, just the basic idea that he tossed out there, of, do we think 70-30 is going to last forever? And if not, why don't we just, you know, why don't we pick a number like a billion dollar a year run rate? And, you know, once we reach it, you know, we could lower the rate to keep it at a billion as it grows to 25-75, Um I think if they had done that, they'd be at, they'd still be so much higher than a billion dollars a year run rate because yeah. I think the other funny thing looking at these emails from the Epic trial is how much more popular the iPhone and App Store both are than even their internal wildest dreams, 
right? Yes. It's, you know, like you even just said that Steve Jobs, when they announced the original iPhone, he was like, we're, we're shooting for 1% market share. We think that'd be great. You know, we'll take the, you know, premium 1% market share. It's it's ridiculous how successful yes. it's been. But they don't. The other thing is with iPods, they didn't need the money from iTunes. They needed the money from the iPods. They made yes. the primary business of the company was selling iPods. They're in the music business was selling iPods. And their secondary business was a great music store in a then great desktop music collection app for your MP3 files. Um, and, you know, that was just icing on the cake, but it was primarily all about making money on iPod. And their iPhone business still is and will remain primarily about selling people five, six, seven, eight hundred, eleven hundred dollar, twelve hundred dollar iPhones at a, a decent margin. Yeah. That's it's a not great even a business. business for them. <laughs> it's well, that's the that is the craziest thing. I, I've said this before, or at least I've written it. Um, I think I said it on Dithering. But the craziest thing about this to me is I don't recall any company in my lifetime or uh, that I could think of in historical terms who got into serious antitrust trouble over a side hustle. Yes, it, yes, it is always the main business. Like it's not like AT and T got broken up. Because they had uh, the exclusive rights to Unix at the time. No, it was about yeah. the friggin' phone business and law, the, <laughs> the crazy two dollar a minute rates they ca- they charged for a call that went across state lines. It yeah. wasn't friggin' Unix. Uh, it's it's crazy that they're in hot water. Seri- and you know it's somewhat serious. I mean the bills are being driven, and and there's also uh, no matter what happens, even if all of these bills die in Congress. And the, nothing really comes out of the EU regulators. There, there's a PR hit to this, right? Yes, uh, of constantly and being developer in the news. relation hits, right, yeah. right. And that's the other factor is that the the resentment among developers over Apple's to them to third party developers seeming greed over maximizing App Store revenue is so pervasive that it, it's. And I don't think Apple gets it, which we can get to later. Anyway. Yeah, and the thing, I think the App Store was invented in a time where Apple saw themselves, like you said, from the iPod, where they were the middle person. They would aggregate all these apps and sell them, taking 30% from the paid apps. But then we started getting all these secondary aggregators, like Spotify just aggregates a bunch of music, takes their percentage, and then passes it on. Amazon aggregates a bunch of eBooks or a bunch of comic books and takes their percentage and passes it on. But these models don't support multiple middle people. You can't have Amazon taking 30% to aggregate the books and then Apple taking 30% to aggregate the apps, there's just not enough percent. Right. And no, no one's really willing to give that percentage up. And they're also not willing enough to care about the user experience, which is so weird for Apple because they're almost always user experience first. And it's been this problem for over, or at least for a decade. And that, again, to me is perplexing. I understand how we got here. I don't understand how we haven't gotten out of here yet. Yeah. So I downloaded FanHouse last night because I finally dug into it. And, and FanHouse, the app, is largely clearly in, from the way I can just feel it's largely a bunch of web views. It's in my opinion, not a great iOS app, but you know, it's, you know, you're, you know, you can build an app that way and it's okay. But because it's a web view, they, they could do things remotely and they took out that subscribe button. And so if you download, at least as of this recording, the fan house, iOS app, 
if you're a new user, you can sign up, and and I scored at Gruber, you know, just in case. Who knows? I guess I could use it. It's always <laughs> good to have my username. But I was like, well, let me let me see what it looks like to subscribe to somebody in the app. What what's going to happen? And I found somebody, and you can find their user profile. It's like looking at like at Renee Ritchie in Twitter, yeah, and. What do you expect to see near the top? You expect to see a button that says follow or subscribe, right? Well, there's no button. And it's like, oh, how do I follow somebody? And I'm like scrolling around. I swear to God, I, I used the app for 10 straight minutes thinking I was losing my mind. Maybe I'm getting old. I don't understand these kids' apps today. Yes. And I went to the help in the app, and it doesn't say anything. And then eventually, like maybe 15 minutes in, I went to their website. And their website, you go to website, you hit help, and it says, how do I follow somebody? And it says, you cannot follow somebody in, from the app. You have to go to follow them on the website, and then you'll see them in the app. That's a change they've made in the last week or so since Apple tried to crack down on them. In, in a, it, but yet, even after doing so, Apple, the, the only concession they got was that they were, their grace period to continue not offering in-app purchases through the end of the year. It gets to your point about user experience. What, what, what Apple, Apple's squeezing fan house to try to get them to use in-app purchase for these uh, fan-based subscriptions, whatever you want to call the, this creator type thing, forced fan house to make an app that doesn't let you, that you're supposed to follow people in where the app doesn't let you follow people. Right, you yeah. download yeah. Netflix. Good luck figuring out how to sign up. I wrote a piece years ago where Netflix does have a phone number, <laughs> and I called the phone number. You remember this piece? I yes, called them up, amazing. and and it's. I was like, "Hey, I downloaded the iPhone app. How do I? Uh, I I don't have an account. How do I sign up?" And they were ready for it. Yeah, you go to net. Go to your computer, or your. You could do it on your phone too. Go to Netflix.com in your web browser, and you can sign up there. And they were ready for it. Well, how many companies have a number one? That's ridiculous, right? That you have to make a phone call in the internet age from an app. Yes, it's like yeah. it's like signing up for a magazine in 1978. You know, you got to call Sports Illustrated, and you know, like call, trying to unsubscribe from the New York Times today. Right, <laughs> call now to subscribe to Sports Illustrated. Uh, <laughs> it it's ridiculous but how can a small how can a small developer compete with that if the, if there is an official except exemption for a phone number that's allowed to do but it's a terrible experience it, it truly yes. is and they don't need to have every dollar so what and even if internally yes. apple thinks that they should be using in-app purchase and they should be making more than they would be in a world where they significantly lessen their grip on trying to capture 30% of all app store you know, commerce for digital goods consumed on the phone. Even if internally, Apple truly believes, and I think they do. I think they truly do believe that they they it's deserve just so it. Governor Tarkin, you know, it just it's not a good look. It's it, it just have some grace as as the Goliath in the relationship. Yeah. And again, I know I say this all the time, often with Moltz on the show. It is so easy to play spend Tim Cook's money. Yeah, I get it. But this is one where the benefits, the, Apple would get something. They would get better publicity, better developer relations. They'd, and they'd better lose user experience. Better user experience. Uh, all reasons to, to sell more iPhones and iPads. And they would get this regulatory pressure off of them. 
I mean, it's it, it's kind of bon- or at the very least have a, a much more defensible position in the face of anyone trying to broadly regulate big tech. I I just don't see it, especially given the trends. And I know all things come to an end. At some point, somebody's going to buy the last iPhone ever. You know, it's, it's, you know, nobody's buying Model T Fords anymore. Um, Well, although I guess they still are buying Ford cars. So who knows? You know, I I don't think in the 1980s, people thought the Macintosh would be a thriving uh, for million units per quarter business in the year 2021. So who knows? Maybe phones will still be a huge thing 40, 50, 60 years from now, like cars are for Ford. I just, re- I realized I just, my Ford example is actually counter <laughs> to what I'm arguing. <laughs> but Ford still is in the business of selling their cars for a profit, right? It, it, and yes. yeah, I, you probably do. I knew, I do see stories about people getting nickel and dimed and, and, and car makers. Well, it's like charging for card play on BMW. It's just yeah. you don't need that money. Right. Yeah, or putting ads on the dashboard now that the ads can that can be on the dashboard. It's like yes, it was like all like Samsung phones have ads on the on the lock screen or the or the the home screen. Like you, I just bought your phone. You don't do that, right? It's like there used to be that your there were no electronics on the dashboard and your radio was literally like completely analog. It was a little stick behind yeah. a piece of plexiglass that you moved and you set your favorites with literal radio buttons to punch in your favorite stations. And then we got these little low res, you know, LCD black and white digital things for like the radio station. It's like, Oh, that's cool. And then, you know, you, everything gets modernized and all of a sudden full color led displays are possible and they put and they're pretty big and it's like boy that's a cool thing to put in your dashboard i feel like i'm in a in the future it's a spaceship and then somebody has the idea well wait you can put ads on that screen <laughs> anything that can now you're have- half afraid you're driving a tesla you'll see a dogecoin <laughs> meme it's like it's it's just gone too far <laughs> anyway all right uh let's move on to wwdc after this i'm going to tell you about our next sponsor and it's our good friends arguably the best friend of the show squarespace this episode is brought to you by Squarespace, as an awful lot of episodes of this show are. You can start building your website today at squarespace.com. And if you enter offer code TALKSHOW at checkout, you get 10% off. You could use it for a whole year. Uh, TalkShow, ha- uh, not TalkShow, Squarespace, has uh, everything you need to build a website, from domain name registration to templates to choose from to components to just drag and drop around the page so you can add things like a portfolio of artwork or a store to sell things or a blog where you can post things. And you use Squarespace itself to update the content of your blog. You want to, you know, it's not just adding a blog and host it on Squarespace. You use Squarespace to to create the post for it. All of the sites on Squarespace look professionally designed because the, the, no coding required. If you don't know the difference between HTML and CSS, you're not in any trouble whatsoever. If you do, you can get in there, roll up your sleeves, and tinker to your heart's content. You can get a free domain if you sign up for a year of service up front. So you can start your free trial today. No questions asked. No uh, little bug in the corner that says you're on a free cor- a free trial. You get a 30-day free trial at squarespace.com slash talk show. And when you decide to sign up and start paying for your Squarespace account, make sure to head to that same URL, squarespace.com slash talk show, and use the offer code talk show to get that 10% off your first purchase. My thanks to Squarespace for their continuing support of the show. You had an excellent 
post WWDC interview with oh. Kevin Lynch. Kevin Lynch, yeah, and uh, Deidre Caldback. Deidre Caldback, Caldback, yeah, from product marketing about Apple Watch and Watch OS. And I, as soon as I saw her on YouTube, I was like, she, I know, have I met her? And that's <laughs> the weird thing about being in the media racket is there's an awful lot of people in in product marketing, you know, who I have yeah. met. And, and then you, it, the, my favorite thing about your video is the way, how, how much you cut in mid sentence to callbacks from like previous keynotes, uh, <laughs> referring to old features. And she was the person who, who did the, to me, still the, arguably the greatest demo I've ever, maybe the only one that rivals Phil Schiller's jump from 20 feet yes. high in, uh, <laughs> to Javits Center to show that Wi-Fi works wirelessly back in like 1999 or 1998. She was the one who was on the uh, the wind surfing board. What was it like? Paddleboard, it? yeah. A paddleboard in the middle of a lake live <laughs> during a live event talking to the audience via her cellular Apple Watch. Yeah. <laughs> Showing both that it was cellular, that it worked, that it was sounded pretty good. And uh, that the watch was waterproof. Although I guess, yep. you know, I guess she didn't prove that. She did not fall. <laughs> but anyway. No, but it was a risk she was willing to take. <laughs> but it was so great the way you sliced that in. Like with, you, you mentioned it, but then you cut to it and it's like, ah, oh, man, that was great. I love the way you cut that stuff in. Did, oh, how much you. time did that, you, you cut that whole thing yourself, right? You do all your own editing? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for good or for ill, I just, I love the editing process. So I try to learn as much as I can. I just thought it would be important because, you know, a lot of us know all the, the players involved, but you might have seen them before and not recognize them immediately. So if I can give you something memorable like that paddleboard scene or Kevin dancing, if I can do that early on, <laughs> you'll remember who they are and then be more invested in what they say. I hope. You, you put it even in the title of the, uh, of the video. That it has to work yeah. in two seconds. I thought it was. It, they were. It, it was a very open interview, and I thought that that bit from Kevin Lynch about how they sort of had a, a come to Jesus moment, where it's like we should really focus on a, a, getting everything a user really would want to do, or almost everything, to be something they can accomplish on the watch in two seconds or less, and that that's yeah. a tremendous challenge. Because relative to a relative even to a phone, it has a tiny screen. <laughs> it yes, it has two sources of input really, or three maybe if you count the side button. There's a side button you can click. There's a crown you can either click or scroll, and then there's a touch screen, and that's it. Uh, and they even took away some controls because they've taken away the force touch type thing. Um, yeah. To go in the name of well, who knows why, but there's very little input, very little screen discoverability <laughs> is is a good reason. Well, I think discoverability combined with we could use the space that takes up behind the screen, we yes. could put that to better use. Um, I thought that was really interesting, and I think it does show like there there's a real sense and there's a real continuity of. Watch OS from Watch OS one through Watch OS eight is what was announced last week, or yep. are we up to Watch OS nine? It's eight now, right? No, I think it's eight. Yeah, there, there's a direct continuity of where it's never. It's, it's the one. Pla it's the platform that I guess has gone the longest 
in Apple history without a sort of uh, paint job, right? Like yes. eight years after the Mac would be 1992. Well, System 7 was pretty significantly different than System 6 and earlier. Maybe, arguably, yeah. the Mac was still, you know, watchOS is still chasing the Mac before the Mac really got a, a thorough rethink with macOS 8, visually. Um, it, it's a very continuous line, and, and it's, I, I, what I took away from that interview is how clarifying Apple's internal vision of the watch is. Yeah, I agree. I think there's like there's way more constraints on what you can do on a watch, and they've been much more systematic about it. Like they drop things like glances. They made uh, alternate like you don't have to deal with the, uh, <laughs> the the home screen anymore. You can just have that list of apps. So they slowly but steadily evolved it, but nothing. I don't think it's as big as a even a phone, and you can have that much. It's it's much more driven by the needs of the of the of the smallness of the screen. I'm not saying this at all very well, <laughs> but I it, but they have a vision for what it's good for and what it can yes. what it can be better for it going yes. forward. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it 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 I don't think it's their fault. I I think it you know I know that I think that the gold watches you know the edition ones that cost twenty thousand dollars were. A, disaster and i know everybody knows that internally there was a lot of debate over the entire yeah. the entire endeavor but that's hardware in terms of like what the watch does they definitely had a few ideas at first that didn't pan out like using it as as you know as a as a main reason to get one you know sending your heartbeats and yes to loved ones and stuff which i i i i didn't think was ridiculous and i'm i i don't think i'm a overly sentimental person no to say the least but i just like i don't maybe that sounds kind of interesting to me maybe i would have you know really loved that like you know like in high school or something like that you know that stuff didn't really pan out it, it, but they really really clarified on measuring health and fitness monitoring yeah. it and dealing with notifications and you get notifications yeah. on your wrist and then being, you know, this is where that two second thing comes in. It's like, okay, you got a text message, but you only have your watch with you. How do you respond to this in two seconds? And they've been slowly adding back just better versions of like, originally they had like these five pillars that I think that they sort of said, this is the value that the Apple watch is going to give you. And it was health, but it was also remote control. It was also identity and authentication and payments and um, communications, and it was just, it was too much for a year one product. It just went over, it, it confused people instead of making them more interested, it disqualified them instead of qualifying them in. And then they focused down on the health and, and fitness aspects, and that made a lot of sense to people because it was something above and beyond what a, an iPhone could do. It was dem demonstrable added value. But now slowly but surely, they're adding back interesting communication methods. And now with things like the ID, the whole ID system for driver's licenses, but also for schools and things like that, they're adding back the, uh, the identification and better remote control with HomeKit. So I think they're building it back up to what the original vision was. They just had to sharply pare it down to get everyone to start buying them in the first place. Yeah, and some of the features they talked about this year, to me, are super compelling, like using your watch to open your hotel door. And yeah. I know Disney World, I don't know if Disneyland is, but I know Disney World, is. you can use your Apple Watch as your, instead of a magic band to go around the park and, and you know, put your more or less put your park pass in your wallet, I guess, and, and go in there. Um, those, those, those are super compelling features. Um, 
but the one, the other one, and and I forgot about it, you know, because WWDC was so packed uh, this yes. year. Couldn't I couldn't keep all of the features I wanted to note in head. And the one that yeah. your video reminded me of was the fall detection, and, or not fall detection, the fall mobility pre- prediction. Right? It, it's it's yeah. sort of like uh, the fall detection, which I think was two years ago, maybe three. But you know, yeah. two or three years ago, they added this feature where somebody falls and doesn't get up. The watch can de- could detect it and n- notify somebody who you've set you know, as like an emergency contact yeah. or put something on your wrist. So that all you have to, if you, could, if you could just tap the button on your wrist, you can get help. This new feature is about predicting, Hey, your, 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 your gate seems unsteady and matches the profile of a gate of somebody who's about to, you know, it, it, you know, maybe you're lightheaded, whatever the reasons that people take a, you know, take a fall. And let's face it, this is a feature largely about older people. It was such a fascinating feature. I really would never have thought about buying my parents an Apple Watch before, but now it's it, honestly that seems like a reason to do it. And I know they might be resistant because they're sort of like, I don't want a new thing, you know. But the interesting thing to me is that that's also the first time Apple's doing this sensor fusion between devices where the Apple Watch is measuring uh, things like stair climbing uh, and the app, the iPhone, because it's closer to your center of gravity, is measuring things like the cadence of your gait. So they can put those those things together and give you this profile of whether, you know, what your current mobility is, but also the trends and how it's changing over time. So if you're favoring one leg or you're or you're wobbling or you're doing anything like that, it can sort of surface those things the way it's been surfacing low or high heart rates, for example, for for a couple of years already. Right. Um, I, it, 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 again, sounds corny. You're talking to Apple people. Of course, they're going to say good things. But I, I really thought it, it was truly genuine from both Kevin and Deidre that, that they really yeah. take to heart the letters they get from people who write and say, you know, I bought this for uh, just getting text notifications on my wrist, but it, you know, it notified me that I had a heart fibrillation problem and I went to my doctor and lo and behold, I had a heart problem, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And now there's a, you know, the list of those features is growing. I, I don't know. I thought it was a good job. I don't want to talk too much more about it because I'd really like everybody, if they haven't watched your video, to go watch it because I thought it was a terrific Thank interview. You. Um, and you can just see them getting woken up at 4.30 every morning by Tim sending a wreath of those emails their way. <laughs> <laughs> Bing, bing. You're like if you have like a custom alert for a Tim Cook email and yeah. it's like, good morning. And then all the emails come in. <laughs> that was a pretty good Tim Cook there, Renee. Good morning. <laughs> that was pretty good. <laughs> uh, the other thing, I, I had an interview too. I had uh, Mr. Yeah. Mr. Craig Federighi and Mr. Uh, Mr. Jaws uh, back again. Remote, once again, me in Philadelphia, them in California. Uh, I'm wondering what you think of it. I've, I'm glad to have them both. I was, ha- you know, I, I, I'd rather have both than just have one. Uh, but remote, I don't know. I find the three way re- interview doing it remote to be very difficult. Uh, in a way, they don't make as much fun of each other remotely as they do when they're in person. They not at all, <laughs> and it's it's harder to uh, like it. You know, it, it 
it it's always clear. It's not like, you know, hey, here's the contract, here are the rules of the interview. There there's you know, I said during my show this year that there's there's no like, hey, give us a list of questions and, and stuff yeah. like that. There's really just a handshake agreement that the topic is stuff it from WWDC. It's a WWDC show, not, not a... Mine was the same. It's like talk, watch, and health, but there yeah. were no rules about like right. what you could talk about within those constraints. Uh, not, you know, the state of Apple or anything outside. You know, yeah. can't, can't go back and bitch about the touch bar or something like that. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and I'm happy to agree to it. And it, when a show is live, when my show is live in the theater... And and WWD, the keynote was just a day before. It makes intuitive sense that it should be that way because everybody who's in the audience is all still jazzed up from the keynote and stuff like that. And it's anyway. What I'm trying to say is, it's clear that like Federighi is the star, and he he's great at it. And Jaws is there to back him up, right? He's playing rhythm guitar. Yeah, although also, like, this year, there was no hardware. And, like, there has been hardware two out of the last three years and three out of the last five years. And when there's no hardware, like, Craig is literally the star. Right. And when there is hardware, you know, you get to ask Jaws all sorts of interesting questions about iMac Pros and Mac right. Pros and Apple Silicon, which you couldn't do this year. Right. And if there, were, if I were to do an episode, if I were to do, like, an interview show like that a, a couple of days after the iPhone 13 or 12s or whatever yeah. is going to come out this fall. You know, I, I think clearly Jaws would be playing lead guitar to yes. continue the uh, the the analogy. But that said, on stage, it's easier and comes more naturally me to me to think. It feels like it's been a couple minutes since Jaws has piped in. Let me th- think of something to throw to Jaws. Yeah. And even though Talk in general, uh, you know, we had a pretty good low latency connection for everything. Jaws was, I think, a little bit behind uh, latency wise, just a little. And, and so, but we had very little crosstalk that had to be edited out. And it was, it went, you know, pretty well technically. But I still find it very hard to pay attention to both of them. Even though without the crosstalk, only one's talking at a time, I find it hard to pay attention to both. And then yeah. I'll, I panic and think, wait, what about Jaws? Wait, uh, and where? what What was I thinking? I don't know. What, what, what did you think about that? Yeah, no, like for me, it's just I'm never sure who's going to say what when. So if I wait too long, it's awkward. If I don't wait long enough, maybe I'm going to talk when, when the other person wants to add their two cents into what the first person just answered. So it, it is much... It's a much defter juggling act, I think. And you've got like, oh, sorry. But then if you say that, they're like, oh, I'm just going to, I was just about to say. And then like, you can't, you can't have a natural sentence to start with. Oh, I was just about to say. So you, you've got to, I think, be, it's a whole different art form. It just feels like to, to be able to keep people on a panel in front of you and make sure everyone, there's no dead air, but there's not too much overlap. Yeah, it's tough. Your, your show looked great too. Um, can you talk, do you know how they recorded their sides? iPhones. It's, all, yeah. it's always been iPhones. Yeah, that's that's what we did, and uh, I, I know. I even I, again, I mentioned it explicitly up front on my show that last year I'd tell people that, and they 
they didn't believe me. I was like, no, yeah. seriously, all three of us were on iPhones. And no, uh, Jaws and Federighi are not using green screens. That's actually what it looks like at that time of day in th- that part of the ring on Apple Park. With smart HDR3 because it can expose both the, the foreground and the background, which you don't usually get on a lot of cameras. It's it's impressive. I, it was, it's yeah. surprising how many people thought, you know, they were on green screen for COVID, you know, for COVID reasons, not for like yes. disingenuous purposes, but no, that's actually what it looks like coming off the camera. I thought you, that your footage looked great too. Um, yeah, they did a really good job. I was worried they might give me HDR footage at first and I'd have to figure out how to color grade it, but they didn't. They gave me really good, you know, solid footage. Uh, uh, anyway, let me, let me let you ask me or, or you say what struck you with my interview because I'm not the one to talk about it in the third person. No, I, I like the way that you got like sort of the explanations out of them on the new features or Craig, especially on the new features, because I imagine just every year there's a huge pile on his desk, you know, of features that marketing thinks people are going to be really interested in and will help them sell more devices, but also features engineers have been waiting forever because they personally want to implement them. And this year in particular, because it was such a strange year and we saw such a focus on features that really only make sense because of the year that we had, like the FaceTime sharing and things like that. I thought it was really great that you got, um, like you got some of the standard, you know, we make the features we want to make, but it was really clear that this was the features that they, they felt like they really needed to make this year. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it, it, it's just, it cannot be coincidence that FaceTime and the screen sharing, what's it called? Share, uh, Share, share play. Share play. I was going to say share time, but it's uh, share Me too. play. <laughs> but these are features uh, that I, I'm sure that they haven't, it's not that they haven't thought about them, but it's like the remote aspect, the everybody, nobody's together for an entire year, over a year, clearly brought to a head, shit, we should not have kept these ideas on the back burner, you know, FaceTime, we should have had FaceTime be better by now. Yeah. Um, I don't think I asked about, I, cause I, you know, I always run out of time and I have more questions than time. I don't think yeah. I asked about FaceTime for Android, right? Which is really yeah, well, FaceTime for web the web. View, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Which is interesting. But I think that, and again, this is gets to the sort of thing that they're not going to want to talk about, where it's like they're not going to want to talk about why they do things, other than that we think this is a good feature that people will like. Yes. But I I think the implication of I, – I don't know that FaceTime for the web, which is FaceTime for Windows or, or, or Android, I don't think it would have happened without the pandemic. I really don't. I, I think that it might have been something they forever continue to think, ah, maybe maybe next year, maybe soon. But I think that the experience of using all of the available things that could work with cross-platform over the last year are so bad in so many ways that, you know, and that, that Zoom got to jump from being an obscure company to being yeah. one of the most famous software companies in the world, that was an opportunity they let slip away. And, uh, you know, and I think that now, now, you know, now that they have this FaceTime is something that, that can be there going forward is something more people can depend on. But like you just, it, the old way where FaceTime was limited to Apple devices was something that you just couldn't set up. You know, if, if like you're, doctor 
was going to have remote visits. I had my annual checkup last year remote because I, I, I couldn't go to the doctor because we weren't supposed yeah. to, you know, the, our doctor's office wasn't allowed to open. You know, and it was on Zoom because she can't, she couldn't use FaceTime because she doesn't know that all of her pa- patients have iPhones because they don't all have iPhones, right? I mean, yeah. that's just the fact. I don't know that FaceTime for the web is going to enable or, or would, would push more people if it ever happens again, or, or even for the, the things that will stay remote, even without a pandemic to, to use it, but they could and changing features like the grid view and, and having multiple people in a FaceTime that actually is usable and makes sense rather than looks cool in a demo, yeah. uh, I think was driven by the real world. Yeah, and I wonder how much of that was also the the desire to create those links, and, you know, to to be able to schedule FaceTime calls, uh, having to have some sort of web interface yeah. because you like you, you don't know when or where someone's going to be required to pick up yeah. one of those things. And it's and it's such a it's a weird sort of a thing because you know Steve Jobs famously announced it is going to be open sourced, uh, and the and the the project team was standing there going, "What? Wait, why? How?" And then they got sued, and they got sued, and resued, and oversued, and they've been litigating it for. 10 years over these patents. And it just seemed like FaceTime, we got FaceTime audio, but then nothing for like a decade. And then yeah. finally we started getting those new features like FaceTime groups, but only really recently. And so I think it's it's too early to tell, but they had such an enormous lead. And this doesn't quite feel like catch up because they're really not there the way that even like a Skype or especially not a Zoom is, but it's nice that they are paying attention to it and it has some form of, like if your family is big has big device love or is like a cross device family, you can use it now. Uh, one of my favorite moments in my interview was when Federighi went all the way back to, you know, he was talking about Apple's historic roots supporting privacy, but that in the old days, your data was on a floppy disk and the floppy disk, you could like just put it in your shirt pocket, but you had it. It was in your control. Um, and I enjoyed that because uh, I thought that the, you know, it was clear that he meant it. Like it, it it's like, I know his, you know, his title is software engineering honcho or whatever the hell it is, yeah. you know, senior vice president for software engineering. But the privacy features is more than just like a dictum from above, like, okay, software chief, all of our software has to be as private as possible. And that's just, that's just the rule, you know, like in a way that the software has to comply with all of these local rules. Like when you're in, yeah. Belarus, you know, the, 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 oh, you know, we can't do X, Y, or Z because it's, you know, constrained. It's not just, okay, here's a checklist of these privacy related things that we, I've got to direct my teams to implement and, you know, have done in time. It means something to him. It really, I, I, I and I know some people want to take the cynical point that everything anybody in a public statement for a big company says is bullshit. Uh, but I, 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 I think it's palpable that with Federighi and Jaws, that the privacy stuff, yeah. it, it really does mean something to them. And, and you can argue that there are competitive aspects to their, to this stance that they've taken that are really about uh, taking ad money from Facebook for apps and stuff like that. It, it's, it, I don't, I, I don't think that's, I don't think it's, it's not like, it, it's not a smaller factor, but it's clearly not driving it. Oh, and you can tell because the the way they're doing privacy is they're not coming up with features and then figuring out how to make them private. They're they're involving their privacy team in the entire. They call it privacy by design, but they actually mean that 
the privacy is, is they're not just making privacy features and the privacy features they're making are good. And they keep going through the system and saying, what, what are the points of failure in our current privacy model and how can we fix those and how can we expand those? And we saw that with hide my email and with, um, Apple's new, not, not a VPN IP hiding. Uh, service and iCloud Plus, all those things, but all the features are rolling out the same way all those features are accessible from day one. They're also private now from day one and have those sort of report cards on them from day one. And that is such a massive expenditure and realignment of engineering resources that you can't do that just to tweak Facebook's nose. That is a, that is a philosophical corner pin, uh, cornerstone of a company at that point. Uh, it, it was interesting. Um, to me at the end, because I feel like I don't think there's any question about it. And I'm not just trying to be self-deprecating. I, I have trouble ending these interviews because I want to keep going because I've got more questions. Yes. But I know yes. I'm over the time I've been allotted and it's, you know, uh, I thought this year I finally had a good segue to a final question. I thought it was a good question. And I thought their interest, their answers were interesting but I also thought it was disappointing. And I basically asked about the general growing sentiment of developer discontent, yeah. third-party developer discontent. Uh, and I, I think it's fair to say that both of them seemed, uh, they, they, I, I think literally said uh, they don't understand it. They don't get it, you know, and, and, you know, Federighi from the perspective, look, I know what we, you know, we love our third party developers. We've built all these APIs for them. And Jaws pointed out that, you know, that, that this was the 38th WWDC and, you know, it's a huge production. It, it's a, a massive, and other than the keynote, it's all for developers, and I get it, and that is true. And and I really think they mean it. I, I you know I, I don't think it's I, again I don't think it's bullshit. But I also think though that because they mean it, 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 what we on the outside who perceive the discontent and who agree with many of the points of third party developer discontent need to deal with the fact that Apple doesn't see it that way, and that they you yeah. Know, uh, uh. I think there's like, well, one is uh, Craig's team is populated largely from independent developers. Like some yeah. of our favorite developers right. work work for Craig now, uh, and they, he has a front row seat to a lot of their sentiments and a lot of the way they express things and a lot of their worldviews. And that is, uh, and a lot of people, even on like Eddie's teams, which are the more business focused teams, because the App Store is nominally under Phil now, but my understanding is that's U.S. App Store and the App Store app, and Eddie's team is still responsible for international and for, like, the servers and a lot of the business infrastructure around there. But a lot of them came, you know, even from, like, our world, like, from bloggers or from people in Apple editorial, and they, and they have a lot of really good relationship with developers, but that's not everybody. And I think they all, they have two points of view. One is that we're always told we're wrong, and we always just fight our way through it, and we're inevitably proven right. Uh, and that makes them even more susceptible to a sort of delusion when that's not the case. Uh, and also that Twitter is a huge megaphone and they sometimes, Apple sometimes thinks that you only get the noisiest 10% on Twitter. And there's probably a 90% people who aren't mad at them, who just aren't complaining on Twitter. And that is sometimes going to be true, but it also leaves you open to an even bigger problem in the cases where that is not at all true. Well said. All right, let me take a break here. Thank our third and final sponsor, Memberful. You can monetize your passion with memberships. Memberful 
is a platform that allows you to build a sustainable recurring revenue. Memberful is the easiest way to sell memberships to your audience, and it is used by some of the biggest creators on the web. Memberful has everything you need to run a membership program, including custom branding, gift subscriptions, Apple Pay, free trials, private podcasts for your paid members, and tons more. Memberful seamlessly integrates with the tools you already use. I know for a fact that it integrates wonderfully with WordPress, which is what an awful lot of people use for their content management. You, you though, always have full control and ownership of your audience, your brand, and your membership. Uh, Memberful has world-class, a world-class support team ready to help you simplify your memberships and grow your revenue and work on those integrations with the systems you already have in place and that you need to integrate with. And they are passionate about your success. And you'll always have access to a real human if you need the help. And you can get started for free, no credit card required. Here's how you get started. If you would like to start a membership system for your audience, go to memberful.com today. That's all they want you to know. That's You don't have a code or anything like that. Just go to memberful.com and get started. Or go to the show notes and they have a URL in the show notes with a UTM code that I can't read online, uh, and you can get started today. Uh, my thanks to Memberful for supporting the show. That leaves WWDC itself. Um, <laughs> uh, Small topic. <laughs> well, it's, there's no way we can cover it. And even if we didn't have the my divorce with Ben Thompson hanging over my head. So can I ask you a quick question then on what I thought was one of the most interesting aspects? Absolutely. So no new hardware. And there were some people hyping new hi- hardware. <laughs> I was certainly really hyped for new hardware because a new twenty, a new sixteen-inch MacBook Pro is—I need to have it in my life as soon as possible. But there was such a huge expectational debt for it, and we we ended up not getting any new hardware, which is like again not always the case at WWDC. But it was also the one-year anniversary of announcing Apple Silicon, so it didn't seem like wild to me that they would take advantage of that and show off like the next big step in Apple Silicon. But ultimately, it was one of those software-only shows. And I felt like that expectational debt, uh, people were were ups- well, upset by two things, by that. And also, some people really did, despite all logic and reason, believe that putting an M1 chip in an iPad meant macOS was coming to an iPad pad. And were so upset that didn't happen, that that seemed to sort of put a cloud over the whole show for them. I didn't. I, I didn't see that. I saw the number of people who were predicting or actually saying they had sources claiming that yes. hardware was coming. Specifically, I guess the pro level sixteen inch Mac Pro and the pro level thirteen inch, or I guess maybe fourteen inch MacBook yeah. Pro to separate it from the sort of non pro one we already have. I did not see that inverse. That that. That's interesting, though, that people thought putting the M1 in the iPad meant the Mac OS was coming to the iPad, too. Yeah, Tim Cook took it out of the Mac. He took it out of the Mac, John, and right. he put it yeah. in the iPad. So, therefore, the Mac is coming to the iPad. That was my least favorite part of the keynote, by the way. So, I will answer your questions. Then, as a, that's a good okay. starting point. Uh, that that little mini-movie with Tim Cook as, as the Mission Impossible guy going yeah. in to steal— that was my least favorite part of the keynote. I like having fun, and I like the things they do. I liked, for example, the James Bond theme music with yeah, Kyan Drance. With Kyan, yeah. I, she took out the it was to take out the uh, the mini, right? 
Yes. I believe. It and was, Craig did the whole car thing this year for macOS. Yeah, yeah. And he and and literally shifted gears. I was like, oh yeah, I get it. That's why he's in a car. <laughs> They're shifting gears to talk about Mac OS. I thought that the Tim Cook thing uh was flat because there was nothing funny about it. And even if you take the concept at at that, you know, as a high concept gag. It's still, he's Tim Cook. Why can't he just walk in and take the chip, right? Yes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like Tom Cruise had like to- Saruji has it locked away from him? Yeah. Tom Cruise had to break into the CIA <laughs> and go down on a, on a, on a, on a drop line and steal the knock list because he wasn't in the CIA and he was stealing this yeah. thing. Like the director of the CIA could have just come over and knocked on the guy's door and said, Hey, give me the knock list. And it'd be like, Oh, okay, exactly. sir. Here's the knock list. Right. <laughs> like why does Tim Cook need to do that? I, I thought uh, that was, uh, I don't know. I, I, it, I didn't like it. Uh, but anyway, yeah. um, let's take them in order. Let's say hardware first. I guess I don't know about the rumors. I have no idea where the people who claim to have sources who said that they were coming. I think it just shows that a lot of people have take sources who they don't either don't verify or it's you know it it's a weird business the rumor game. Um, I think the expectation wise thing is driven in part by the fact that the M one has been so successful. Right. It's, it's just, it, it, what can you say bad about it? Right. All of the yeah. M1 Macs are just enormous successes, universally hailed. The iMac had just come out. They're clearly still firing. The iMac at least showed that they're still have, you know, tremendous momentum on releasing yeah. new Apple Silicon Macs and showed, ah, here's our first dose of new industrial design that was based on designing a Mac around Apple Silicon, as opposed to last November's models, which were all physically identical, including like the cameras to their yes. Intel predecessors. So it create, you know, you could see the momentum and you can see, like, to me, the most exciting thing about the new iMacs isn't the iMacs themselves, even though I think they're delightful and really nice computers. It's the, yeah, this is Apple flexing its muscles by not having to work around Intel's heat dissipation and, yes, and performance per watt, this is this is exciting. So of course they're going to keep the momentum going, and the you know I, I, yeah the Mac Pro. I feel like everybody's like, well, we can wait for that because that's obviously the hardest thing to build for build for the smallest audience, even though the prices yes. will be high. But the you know at least for the pro level MacBooks. I could see why people would think it's possible. I certainly thought it was possible. I wouldn't have been. I wasn't surprised either way. I wasn't surprised that they weren't ready, and I wouldn't have been surprised if there was a half-hour segment about the two new MacBook Pros, or even just one of the two MacBook Pros, right? But I didn't. I didn't yeah. think it was a sure thing because it 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 just doesn't. I don't know. There's something you know, like. And and two, I keep going back to last year where they said it was going to be a two-year transition. But clearly, now that they didn't come out at WWDC, my expectation is that they will not come out until the fall. I don't. I mean, I don't. They, like a traditional October event, 
or November, like last year with yeah, you know class, like with the Mac. Year. I mean, who knows? I mean, it might be that that whole schedule might have all been pushed back a month by COVID. Um, yeah, I guess October. I guess ideally, they, if they could, I guess anything they've ever done in November, ideally, if they had to hit targets, you know, nothing had ever gone wrong. Yeah. They'd always rather ship in October than November, um, just because you're getting closer to the holidays and stuff. Um, I, I I sort of think because I know I know that you have have written about this or you know YouTubed about it extensively is the like the idea of an M1X but now yeah. we're at, we're out of time for an M1X because an M1X would basically be adding more GPU cores and more CPU cores to the M1 to get better yes. multi-core performance and better GPU performance Gen- GPU performance always goes up with more cores cuz everything GPU related yeah. is is multi-threaded whereas and this is where, to me, we've run out of time. Where, sure, adding more cores, CPU cores, to an M1X would make these Macs faster for some things, you know, like Xcode and certain certain things. But there's an awful lot of stuff, even on the Mac, that remains single-threaded bound, right? JavaScript, yeah. famously. Um, and it would be weird for, like, Apple to have like a, an August event for these M1X MacBook Pros and then two months later release new MacBook Airs and consumer grade 13-inch MacBook Pros with the M2 and they'd be faster in single-threaded performance? That's, that doesn't sit yeah. right. Right? That's And that's, you know, there have been times where there are gaps in Apple's Pro Mac performance and the consumer performance like you know where the famous I, I would just say the iMac Pro, which only ever really had one instantation instantiation, it yeah. got surpassed in single core performance because it just sat there unchanged for a couple of years, and it was really mostly something you'd only want to buy for multi core. And that was kind of Xeon's thing. Yeah, it's not the multi, the single core. Exactly, it's Xeon's thing. It is what it is, and that's Apple having to play on Intel's playground. For CPU performance, that's what it was. But now that their entire chip story is in their own hands, they'd never want to do that. They would never want. The only thing that makes me wonder is that you know the like if we consider an M1 is an A14X, and then we'll have an A15 in September with a new iPhone, and the M2 would be an A15X, you know, plus plus, so to speak. Right. They they haven't been updating iPad Pros as frequently as iPhones. They've been doing it sort of every eighteen months. So like. There was an A12 uh, X and Z, but there was no A13 X. So the iPads were behind the iPhone in single core uh, operations until the M1 version came out. And they've been willing to let them have better multi-core performance at the expense of single core. So I wonder if they'd be willing. I don't think they'd be willing to do that with the Mac, but I wonder if they'll have that same approach where the the M series don't get updated the same cadence as the A series does. That's possible. Uh, You never know. Uh... Uh, we'll see, you know, right, right, right. We know the pattern with iPhone, right? The iPhone is the most regular product yeah. Apple has ever had. Uh, yes. It is literally annual except for one shift where they went from June releases to the September, October releases. Yeah. But that was, it, it, from everything I've, I've suspected and sort of known, that was a strategic shift that it was, that was a better time to release phones that they that, and they that took over the iPod slot. But I tend to think that they might keep 
if they can keep the M M series on an annual cycle. I think they like the annual cycle, and I think that the reason the iPhone stayed on it and other products haven't is, I think, primarily driven by the fact that it's their highest priority product. Yeah. So it's the one least likely to ever slip. Yeah. And if, but in theory, I think they would like to have other products updated annually. If they could, it's just, you know, you can't, can't only so necessarily. Much yeah. So anyway, my best guess at this point, completely uninformed by any sources, is that the pro MacBooks are going to have to wait for the M2 series and that we'll see M2s and M2Xs either side by side or near, near each other or something like that. I don't know. What do you think? I just want it as fast as I can get it, John. Honestly, I'm still editing on an Intel box, and I, just, I want to switch so fast. <laughs> uh, as far as macOS on iPad, I don't know why people think that. I guess I know people. I know some people who who just sort of idly think it, but it's like they they idly think it in a way that boy, I wish I won the lottery. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, I don't know. But it it's not how Apple operates. No. It, it makes no sense. Uh, I, the closest I could think of something that Apple might do would be to have some kind of Mac in an iPad app type thing where you're still running your device still runs iPad OS, but that you can, you can launch an app, it. a virtualized Mac OS version. Um, I, it, but that doesn't, that's the closest I can think to something that Apple would even consider. It, they just don't, it, that's just not how they think about things. They don't think about the OS and the device as being, uh, as being interchangeable parts that you could just do something like that. And quite frankly, the Mac, as we know it, would not work right on iPad. It doesn't have touch. It doesn't rotate. It doesn't expect to rotate. Yeah. And obviously, they could just announce APIs and say, here's, you know, all of a sudden, you should be expect, you know, screen rotation to change at any Reverse moment. Catalyst. And you'll get a no- <laughs> And you'll get a notification. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and I've said this all along, that all of these controls aren't meant for touch. They're all too close to each other. And you could either have a bad touch experience with controls that are too small and too close to each other, or you can make everything bigger and make things worse for the users who don't want to use touch or aren't using touch and are using a mouse pointer on the Mac. It's a, you know, it's designed as a precision. I I, I don't want to go too long about that, but I, I just feel like you're, it's, I don't know. I just buy a MacBook if that's what you want. Yeah. No. Totally I don't get agree. it. Totally agree. Uh, iPad OS. That's the one thing I want to talk to you about. Yeah. That uh, I don't want to run out of time on. I've been using it on my iPad since the keynote day. Um, Same. I, I like it a lot. I really do. And I said it on my show with Craig and Jaws, but now a couple of weeks later, it really is. It, it, and again, it, it's sort of like when we talked a, an hour ago about how iOS feels safe and secure when you're installing apps. It's, it's, it's ineffable in some ways. It's hard for me to describe, even though it's sort of my job to try to write about user interface and stuff like that. It's hard to describe how and why the multitasking now feels solid and knowable. You know, like how you could get up in the middle of the night without your glasses on and your bedroom's dark and get to the bathroom because you know where everything is, right? And all of a sudden you're in a hotel room and it's like you're stubbing your toes. You're you're almost peeing in the closet because (laughs) that's the closet and the bathroom's on the other side. Um, it, it, It has, even though it's new, it's not familiar, it's designed in a way that encourages becoming familiar with it in a way that the old style 
iPad multitasking never became familiar to me, never made sense, never felt natural. Um, I, I, I really, really like it, and I'm impressed with it. And it's also not by doing the thing that everybody, not everybody, but some people were saying that just make it either just run Mac OS like you said, or yes. just make the iPad just like Mac OS, which would have no point. Yeah, the thing that's interesting to me is like what I think the difference is now is that it's predictable, like it ha- and it's considerate. And before, like even people whose job it was to use an iPad, you would see them messing up on on launching multitasking because you'd touch that icon in the dock, and maybe it would go into jiggle mode. Maybe you'd pull it off the dock by accident. Maybe you would pull it into. Uh, maybe you wouldn't mean. Maybe you'd want to pull it off the dock and you'd pull it into multitasking. And there was just no way. Like it was it was beyond the realm of human reason that you'd get it exactly right all the time. It was just completely overloaded. There were so many conflicts, so many collisions. And that little change of putting that button there, of making it obvious, of just conceding that you needed that affordance uh, changed changed my entire feeling about it as well. Because now I know there's that button, I can push it, and every time it's going to do exactly what I want it to do. And I can trust that it's going to do only that. And it's just, it's removed all of the 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 stress the aggravation over multitasking i think that by itself is just a, a huge improvement i i i i'll tell you this i for example watched a couple of videos um last few days catching up uh i had to catch up on yours that's where i watched you and oh, kevin lynch you. and deidre well but i i did it all on my ipad and I had like iMessage over on the right and uh, notes over on the right. I'd switch, switch out. That's the sort of thing that was to me always so like, why can't I just yes. easily replace this notes or, or this iMessage window with notes? Cause I want to take notes on, on Renee's video. Uh, I, I, it just really felt way more like a get things done OS. That, that's my point. Yeah. And I even mentioned it on the, in the interview. I just love the detail now that you can finally, if you have a keyboard attached, just use the arrow keys to yes. move around the home screen and, and you get a selection, like a TVS style selection around an app and then you hit return and you switch to the app. Like, honestly, that should have worked before. Yeah. It's, it's to me inexcusable that, you know, they added keyboard support, but didn't make the keyboard a part of getting it done. You know. A lot of the last two years of iPadOS have felt like run out of time. It's like they have all these ideas and like they just couldn't finish. Like they couldn't finish widgets. They couldn't finish app library. They couldn't finish keyboard bindings. They couldn't finish. And this year, I mean, given the focus and also how much time they can save now by making things with things like SwiftUI that work on iPhone and iPad and don't require massive amounts of recoding, uh, I think this let them not just catch up but really personalize things for the iPad better. Yeah. My other high level takeaway from the whole of WWDC is the, the confirmation that I've been right all along that Swift UI is the future of Apple UI design yeah. and that Catalyst is some kind of weird political stopgap that I still don't quite understand why it exists. Because Catalyst wasn't mentioned once in the keynote. Nope. And there's not one new Catalyst app from nope. Apple this year. Uh, I don't know. They're, catalyst. No, no. And shortcuts. The one that would have been the most obvious yeah. candidate to make catalyst is not a catalyst app. And Federighi called it out on yeah. on my show that it, no, it's a. It, I don't think he said real Mac app because he doesn't want to say. I forget what he said actually, but it, it was clear that he meant it was AppKit. I think he yeah, even maybe used the word AppKit with uh, with SwiftUI. Um, 
It, it does have some weird things. It's like AppKit made by iOS developers. So like I've, I've been playing with it and it's like when you do like a display alert in shortcuts for Mac, the alert is hideously ugly and incredibly <laughs> wrong for the Mac. Hopefully that'll get, I, yeah. I, hopefully that gets fixed before it ships, but it's pretty much it for my high level takeaways. Here's my, here's my last question to you. What do you think they're going to do next year for WWDC? Oh, wow. Remote so, again or in person like before? So I don't know what they're going to do. My hope would be a hybrid approach because I think that there's things they can do in terms of the speed and cadence and information delivery of the recorded events that they just can't match. Like, yes, you know, nobody laughs at Craig's dad jokes the way that they do in, when there's an audience there, but just some of the presentations are so well done in this new environment that I hope like they, they bring a smaller amount of people maybe you know, to, to WWDC, they have a much bigger focus on labs at WWDC or the things that you really have to do in person, but they make the sessions available in this style to everyone as fast as they possibly can. And they have whole segments of things done. Like maybe, you know, Craig will come out or, or Tim will come out and introduce something and then we'll see a video on it and then they'll talk a little bit and then we'll see another video on it. But I think they're, they've made great advances this year that I'd hate to see them lose completely. How about you? I don't know. I kind of think they're going to go back to traditional in-person WWDC. I think they like having 5,000 developers there. They like and, and know the, the advantages of face-to-face, you know, collaboration for like, uh, 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 what do they call it when you get a session with it? Yeah, the labs. Uh, the labs. Um, but does it change the way they do keynotes forever? Even when they have, 5,000 people packed into the convention center or a thousand of us packed into the Steve Jobs theater. uh, Does it change the percentage of stage presentation versus pre-recorded material? Maybe. And do they keep doing the WebEx or whatever they used so that people who can't make it there also get some lab time, which I think would be huge. I don't know about that though, because where's the bandwidth come from? You know, the personal bandwidth come from. You know, so I don't know. I mean, because if, if you can only fill up, if you only have so many engineers from Apple and they only have so many hours, and uh, if they all get filled up by the people who were there in person, where do the people come yeah, from? No, that's true. So it's I don't know. Challenge. You know, um, I don't know. But maybe they do reserve some because they understand, though, that there's a certain percentage who, lottery aside, they don't need luck. They just, they, they can't travel to WWDC yeah. for cost reasons or whatever other personal reasons there might be. I thought it was interesting that in my show, they both had a sort of, yeah, we hope to see you next year yeah. sort of thing. But that's hard to read. That's not reading into how they're going to hold the conference, right? Because yeah. it, it, assuming, you know, it, almost certainly that it, it, it'd be possible you know, and it, even if they didn't hold a virtual, even if they hold a virtual conference, I suspect they definitely still invite lots of press. So I would still be out yeah. there anyway, and I could still hold a live show, you know, in a theater, even if there's not an actual in-person conference going by. My money is on the in-person conference again. With maybe maybe their keynotes are forever more it, brief segments on stage and longer yeah. segments that are pre-recorded. That would be my bet. But I, I could see it going either way. Yeah. So at, at no point during your interview, John, did Craig and Jaws try to get you to undo that second button on your shirt? <laughs> Nobody mentioned it, but I okay. did notice. I did notice I was East Coast 
one button undone, and they were both West Coast two buttons undone. Yeah, a lot of peer pressure. <laughs> All right. That is a tight show, Renee. This might, might be the shortest show you and I have ever done. I think so. But I, I feel like we covered a lot of it. I don't want you to get anyway, with Ben, though. I know. I'm going to send you to uh, youtube.com slash Renee Ritchie, Renee's extraordinary uh, YouTube channel. Uh, and, of course, you can follow him on Twitter at, at Renee Ritchie. Thank Talk you. to you next time. Sure.